Oh man, I have just I have been talking so much this morning. Um, this is like both future and past John trying to fill in the blanks because uh, uh, I, I just I had to split the previous episode or this episode into two. Like I'm, I'm completely losing all sense of space and time. I just talked so much, folks, and I'm I am I'm so sorry for that. But clearly, like you wind me up, you let me go, and this is what happens. But I think it's um I think I think we've got a broken the seal now. I'm hoping that when we return the uh, subsequent episodes, it's gonna. It's going to move at uh, at more of a pace. So uh, yeah, um, sorry for the brief interruption, but welcome back to uh, the continuation of the Dying to Tell story. As I say, hello and welcome to the Afterlife Inc. podcast, a deep dive into a comic and a company you can believe in. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. and the co-founder of Big Punch Studios. This episode is made possible by your support at patreon.com forward slash Afterlife Inc. and by my incredible Kickstarter backers who helped make the Afterlife Inc. 10th anniversary collection a reality. Now, let's get started. Honestly, uh, an hour of talking and we've barely even gotten to the stories yet. I mean, this is what I mean about it potentially being indulgent. I'm gonna try I'm gonna I'm gonna try and get back to the focus here. So that's kind of like a potted history of where of how I kind of got to the point of kind of making uh, Afterlife Inc. as an actual comic. And I, I guess with that in mind, it's probably only fair that we start at the very beginning, which is the, the very, very first uh, kind of Afterlife Inc. story that ever got made, which is uh, Dying dying to Tell, which is kind of, um, yeah, which is, which is really where, where, where I'm going to turn to now. So if you are reading along at home, uh, maybe you've got your soft cover, maybe you've gone straight to the Book of Life, I am holding one of the copies of the Book of Life, so I'm going to. Here we go. Just going to skim past those opening opening pages. So, so wonderfully laid out. Such brilliant interior book design. That's all my work, baby. Um, so yeah, we get to final destination, which was the first after I think story. So the interesting thing about final destination is, I'd always imagined that after I think would be published in a more traditional way. I really thought that I would get this comic made by finding a publisher, uh, impressing them, and then doing it as monthly issues. Because that was just, that's how I understood comics. That's, I was like, this is how you make comics. There's no other way. And with that in mind, I had planned out a Again, stupidly ambitious, planned out like a kind of six volume arc, if you will. There are going to be six storylines, each of six issues. And by issue, I mean a 22 pager. And that would tell the complete story of Afterlife Inc. Beginning to end. And, that, and then it would be done. That would be all of it. And I had those storylines planned out for quite some time. You see, I've been working on a pitch document, if you will. I, I had this kind of um, word document, which I've been coming back to time and time again. I, I was, um, I remember reading um, Ex Machina, the comic, um, by Brian K. Vaughan. And I'm ashamed to say, I can't remember who the artist was on it, which is, which is terrible of me. But yeah, Brian K. Vaughan and, and the great artist whose work was, was wonderful. And in the deluxe edition, so the hardback of one of the collected editions of their work, they, they'd included as a special feature the original 
uh, pitch document. So how they'd sold it to the publisher. And that was very educational. So I, I used kind of like the format of that to develop um, a pitch document outlining what the entire story of the series would be, which of course is, you know, the publisher doesn't want any secrets. The publisher wants to know everything that's coming to work out whether it's worth their time publishing issue one. Uh, but with that in mind, because I was still labouring under this idea that like I would one day get that publishing deal, I kind of was like, well, well how am I gonna, how am I gonna like show what Afterlife Inc. can be rather than just tell? And I remember I'd I'd, I'd gotten like um, the trade paperbacks of Planetary, which is an amazing series by Warren Ellis and John Cassaday. It's, it's um, you know, one of the most kind of acclaimed and recognised comics out there. And in that first book, which was like six issues collected as a trade, they had also included a special feature, which was an eight-page short story, which I believe was called like, I think it was called like Nuclear Winter or something like that. And that eight-pager, I think, had originally been included uh, in in some other uh, titles, which were current at the time being published by, oh, Image or Wildstorm, whoever the publishing wing was at the time, it's a complex history, as a kind of like a teaser, like, oh, well, you mean you're collecting this comic, so you must enjoy this one. Maybe you'd like this little kind of glimpse at another book that's coming out soon. And it was a great little, it was a great little story because it's a little rough around the edges and, you know, hadn't quite condensed into what Planetary would become. But it gave a great indication of the themes of the, of the book, you know, the characters, the interplay and how that was going to pan out. It was a wonderful like proof of concept, like a, like a kind of calling card, a pilot, if you will. And so I was like, oh, my God, I should make one of those, you know, because making an eight page comic is much, much, much easier and affordable than making or trying to make a 22 page comic or indeed trying to tell a hundred page epic. You know, again, always have these stupid big ideas. So my thinking was, I will make a eight-page short story which serves as an introduction to Afterlife Inc. It is everything you need to know about the world, the series, the characters. And it's like a, a statement of intent. This is like what the series will be. This is what I want to achieve with, with it. And my thinking was, if you can imagine, I've got this, um, this meticulously planned out idea of what the six volumes of Afterlife Inc. are going to be. Because in my head, I'm still like, one day that will get published. So I'm like, volume one opens with Jack dying. <laughs> volume six ends with, well, I won't tell you what it ends with, but volume six is the big finale of the series. So it's literally, it's an A to B plot. It's Jack dies, arrives in the afterlife, events happen, then eventually conclusion. So I'm like, well, I can't touch those stories because clearly they're going to be published by, you know, uh, <laughs> a major publisher one day and it's going to get widespread global acclaim. And and so I was like, well, I can't touch that. I've got to save that package for another day for those publishers. So I'm going to instead make a standalone story, which is just somewhere in the middle of Afterlife in Continuity. As in, like, uh, if the main series is going to start with Jack dying, I'm just going to I'm just going to dive in and go straight to the interesting stuff. Like, I'm going to, um, 
yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to worry about origins. I'm not going to show Jack dying or anything like that. Just jump straight to in media res, the, in, the interesting stuff. So that became this story, Final Destination. And my thinking was this will be for a pitch document. And the only people who will ever see it are going to be publishers. You know, no one else is, is going gonna, is gonna to get a look in at this. And I think around that time, and this was 2011 now, so again, like, nothing moved quickly in my life at the time. But in 2011, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of putting my foot, foot in the door and I'm going like, okay, I need to make a name for myself as a writer. I need, I need a presence. So I, um, I ended up getting my first, my first website, which at the time was um, custom built for me by a developer, a local developer using like Joomla 2, which is like a pretty, it's like, it's like a pretty outdated kind of like website coding language today, but was pretty great at the time. And um, I think around this time, this was like 2011, I started going to UK conventions. I'd connected with a few, a few kind of like aspiring UK creators through like a friend of a friend. And so I was starting to make, I was starting to make connections. I was starting to get to know people out in, in the world. And I was starting to just discover that there were UK independent creators out there. So in 2011, like I was aggressively touring UK conventions. You know, I was fact finding, I was meeting people. I was, um, I'd go to a show, I'd buy books, mostly independent books. And I'd, I'd talk to people, I'd talk to creators. And this was like a revelation for me because, you know, I, everyone was so friendly, like everyone was so hel uh, helpful. And some of the people I met in that year in 2011, like I'm still friends with them now. You know, I remember um, going to Thought Bubble in 2011 and uh, I met, um, I met Nikki Shu, I met Abby Bulmer, like two, you know, just really friendly people. I remember chatting to them, chatting about cartoons. You know, they were sitting behind a table. They were ostensibly trying to like, sell their book and they very kindly just chatted to me and gave me such kind of useful advice as in like, oh yeah, here's how you could get a book printed. Here's the name of a printer. And like, they'll make it look good. They'll actually make it look like a real graphic novel. And here's how you get a banner, like uh, for your table. Here's maybe get a tablecloth, like little things I've never thought of. And, uh, and so I was, in 2011, I was like, uh, just really like, fact-finding, like kind of trying to learn everything I could about about independently making comics. I, I think I still had this idea in the back of my head that like I would find a publisher, but I was also starting to toy with the idea that like, well, maybe while I'm finding a publisher, I could start kind of sharing sharing my kind of stories with, with, with the world. And so having got like a website made, this kind of slightly, uh, you know, kind of old fashioned website by today's standards, um, johnlock.com uh i remember putting this first story this this kind of pitch if you will up on on the website for well i don't know like tens of people to read like i had no way of tracking kind of like visitors at the time so i've no idea who actually listened or didn't um but yeah so i had connected with this amazing artist called ash jackson i think through the digital webbing forums Oddly enough, like things coming full circle. I've been chatting to Ash this week, like, you know, real kind of like blast from the past. And Ash had done work for like Avatar Press, I want to say, and a few kind of like these like mid-level kind of American publishers, which have, because America have this much, much, much bigger kind of ecosystem of, of publishers compared to the UK. 
And Ash was so responsive and, and helpful. And um, he was American. Like, I think he lived in Boston. And, and so all our interactions were done via email, you know, never met in person, still haven't to this day. And, you know, Ash just really like, like ran with my scripts. I remember like telling him about, about Afterlife Inc. and my plans for this eight page comic. And I had, you know, some money from my day job. So I was able to, you know, kind of pay him. Again, like I only had like a limited budget because, you know, again, my job wasn't the best, best paid job and most well-paid job in the world. And, uh, and so being able to finance like an eight page comic was a lot more, a lot more manageable. So Ash kind of became my first collaborator on Afterlife Inc. And I remember writing the script and thinking, you know what, I'm relatively proud of this. I have no idea about a quote unquote right or wrong way to write a comic. I'm just going to kind of dive in and see what happens. And yeah, I don't know. It's just one of these weird moments where it just kind of, I don't know, I, I felt I, I felt possessed by a strange sense of confidence and I just kind of, I just kind of dove into it. And I remember that feeling when Ash sent me back the very first page. And I think, I think this is at a time when I was still living, I was still living at home. So if, if this wasn't 2011, it was 2010, it was around the time. I come back from Canada, I was living at home again with my parents, I hadn't moved out yet. And I had a very basic phone. There's a point to this, I swear. I had a very basic kind of digital phone. And um, I remember, I think I was on the bus. I, I'd taken the bus to meet up with some friends. We were going out for some drinks. And I remember on that bus ride, viewing um, the first pages that Ash had sent me, like the pages I now have open in front of me, like pages one and two and three of Dying to Tell on the phone, this tiny little screen. And to be honest, like, given what data was probably like in 2010 like i don't know if i downloaded them over over wi-fi or or just kind of like plugged a cable into my computer and physically uploaded them but i remember viewing them on my phone on that bus and just feeling like kind of like electrified like i just couldn't stop looking at them i was like oh my god like this is everything's kind of oh my god like it's a comic and i wrote it like i it was it was kind of like i was giddy i was drunk with power and yeah, it was just such a bizarre feeling. And I, it's a shame that like the distance of time, like I, I, since that point, like I've I've worked on so many comics. I mean, we've produced so much kind of Afterlife Inc. content that as as much as like every moment is wonderful, you know, and every time getting a new page out is great. Like the downside of making a lot of stuff is that you, you, you become a bit kind of like the magic kind of disappears a little bit because you, you know, you're just, you're on to the next project on the next deadline. But yeah, so we open with poor Tony, the pilot, um, kind of in a in a plane which is going down. And if you want a really weird Easter egg, which uh, I guess for the moment I kind of say it out loud, it loses its magic. Um, I constantly sneak reference to the number 219 into my comics. Like, um, I think nearly everything I've written has a weird reference to the number 219. Um, the number has no particularly deep significance to me. I just remember like an early story I was developing with a friend when I was in secondary school. We needed a random number to be like a someone's code name, like someone needed like Agent X or Agent 13. And I remember like just putting, pressing the random number generator on, on, um, on, uh, on the calculator and it coming up with 219. So Agent 219 or whatever. And since then, 
I just put the number 219 into, into everything, wherever I can. If I ever need a generic number, it will be 219. So yeah, like now you know, keep an eye out for it because it's hidden in a lot of comics. And um, and yeah, and we're right into we're right into the comic. I mean, there's times when I look back on some of the early stuff and I'm like, oh wow, like I, I hope there's nothing I put in the early stuff which was slightly like loose on canon or, or things which kind of like ever so slightly changed the rules of the world because it wasn't solidified yet. But and there's there are some egregious ones which I'll draw attention to as we go along. But at this point, I think we're still mostly mostly okay. I find it I find it a little hard looking back on some of my old comics sometimes because, you know, a lot of what I see is how I would improve it. You know, I, I see the ways on like how I would do things differently. And I think the problem is, is that you could you could honestly go go mad. I don't want to be like George Lucas, just endlessly re-releasing the old content, like trying to improve it. You know, it comes a point where you have to accept what it is and move on. And that was a big, you know, that was a big thing for me, kind of in in get in in making comics and and I guess kind of like making more and more comics as the years went on. The um, it's the idea that like if I'd tried to make a perfect comic like right out the gate it could have taken me 10 years to get it perfect I, uh, 20 years my entire life like there's maybe no such thing as a perfect comic whereas in that time I've made quite a few comics now quite a few projects which are maybe they're not perfect but maybe they're good maybe a couple of them are even great I don't know but like I'd rather have a larger library of stuff that shows constant improvement than trying to get it right the first time but yeah, like, it's amazing looking at this stuff now, like how much Ash's incredible visual faces became such a part of After I think. It's funny how, like, he got Jack, like, right out the gate. And I think given how much of a character Jack is, how much Jack is the, really, the, 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 the emotional and narrative heart of After I think, like, if he wasn't a compelling protagonist like we wouldn't we wouldn't enjoy the book as much as we did so I'm so grateful to Ash for kind of just getting for getting Jack so right so right I remember I think I think he did like kind of four kind of conceivable sketches for hairstyles and facial styles for for Ash uh, for Jack and uh yeah like one in that first batch he sent over that one of them was just perfect and, and that's the one we ran with I think it was also Ash's idea to give Jack kind of golden eyes which is a really kind of subtle touch, which we've really run with since then. And, you know, who knows, might even be kind of like law reasons for it. Um, turning the page, we, of course, get this amazing reveal of Nuriel kind of uh, doing his thing. Um, you know, if I was excited at just any artwork being based on my, on my story, um, this was just something else. Like, this was just so kind of flipping cool. And I think when people... When people read this, this was really one of those moments that kind of like, this is where people go like, oh, hang on a minute, wait, you know. Because in hindsight, Dying to Tell is quite a weird book. I think it, it, it it's made up of lots of pieces. And I think, you know, because it's an anthology. And I think the kind of, the pieces are, it's greater than the sum of its parts. And I, and I think a lot of that is by accident. I can't take credit. I can't say that this was kind of like, you know, a work of absolute genius on my part. Like I was stumbling through this book, like trying to work out how on earth you 
you you make a book how on earth you bring it together like i was really just trying to tell tell good stories i was really just trying to like show what i was capable of and you know you after i think now is is there's like what six individual volumes uh we're working on the seventh there's a uh there's a crossover there's two hardbacks there's going to be a there's going to be an rpg and it's you know you when people you're out showing you're selling it to people and you're like you know you've got to start somewhere start up book one and it's this crazy gateway into this big world and i always like seeing the expression on their face when they when they turn the page to see nuriel here um because yeah i think that kind of you can see their eyebrows raise and they go like oh, okay okay i guess we're, we're in it we're in it now um, again, more and more of just like kind of Jack's uh, lovely facial expressions, courtesy of Ash. Um, Sean, special shout out to Sean Di Pasquale, the letterer, who, again, I knew nothing about lettering at that point in my life. And Sean did a great job of kind of bringing my, frankly, quite verbose script to life. Um, I've since become a lot more sympathetic to the plight of letterers, being a letterer myself. And, and so now when I write... I do think about the letterer a lot more. Um, yeah, so apologies to everyone who's had to kind of like letter my my stories over the years because I, I, I try to use shorter words now. I try to think about, you know, I try not to end a, end a speech bubble on a particularly long, long word. That's a nightmare as anyone who's tried to do it will attest. But yeah, like given, given what, you know, you now know about Dying to Tell in that it's meant to be you know, it's meant to be a, a pitch for Afterlife Inc. It's, you know, we have Jack effectively pitching the fictional company to Tony at the same time that the story is pitching the world to the reader. Like, this is, it's, it's very much a statement of intent. And it's, it's also like, again, it's this weird kind of like thing where it's, it's happening in the middle of the action, like it's in media res. And, the I've had a few people say like, oh man, I really like in Dying to Tell how you just dive into the story and you don't explain, you know, you don't explain how this world came to be. You don't explain how Jack died. I really like the mystery. It's really clever and intriguing. Their works, not mine. And I always have to act like, oh yeah, I intended it to be that way. That was, that was pure genius on my part, but it wasn't. It's just a, it's just a really like happy accident because as 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 you now know like i was still believing that this wasn't the main story that this was like a side story that would just help me sell the main one um but yeah like again it was a happy accident that actually worked out quite well actually worked out quite well for um the series um uh, kind of like a blinking you'll miss it thing here but when nuriel chucks so i think we're on page five now when nuriel is throwing the wreckage of the plane off the side of the Empyrean. You may notice that it's um, it's coming apart. Uh, and that's because um, it's something that Tony brought over with him. So it's a, it's like a fragment. It's, it's part of his psyche. And um, it's something that we, you know, kind of dive into more as we go through, go through the books. But um, in the afterlife, there there are no physical bodies like the Empyrean is solid. It's made of this weird matter. Um, angels are solid. They're made of the same thing as uh, as as the afterlife. But humans, any living thing in the afterlife, um, their body is it's kind of like um, it's kind of like pure thought stuff. It's it's the um, 
it's a, it's a mind recreated. So hence for why you know people can get their arms ripped off and there's no blood because nobody bleeds in the afterlife. You're just made of mana. You're just made of this kind of blue substance. So here we see the plane kind of disintegrating because you know anything that comes across from life, um, living things, they can't abide. They can't abide the uh, the void. And at the moment you step off the Empyrean, uh, you're obliterated and you you know you turn back into a into an uh, an Atman or soul. Um, which is something I kind of pillage from from Hindu mythology, the concept of a of an Atman, uh, and yeah, and of course it, you know you could ask yourself like, well, how does it, how does that work with a plane? Because um, surely the plane is an object, not a person. But at the same time, it it's something that came across from life. So if you here's a thing: if you're if you end up playing the eventual Afterlife Inc. RPG, which is in development, there's a class of character you can play as called um, a fractured. And the fractured are people who, the kind of transition from dying to arriving on the Empyrean, like something went wrong in that process. And because something went wrong, um, you brought a little part of yourself across from you, uh, across with you. And now it's kind of manifested as a physical thing, as something external to you. So if you were role playing as Tony, I might go as far as to say that he is a fractured. Again, some of the rules are a bit a bit loose at this point, but I like to think that it's soft world building. That's my excuse. If you if you don't draw too much attention to it, you can get away with anything. So here we have um, Jack uh, taking Tony on a on a tour of the Empyrean. You'll notice kind of Lux uh, is walking along behind them. Um, Ash doing a good job of uh, kind of bringing the general chaos of life on the streets of um, Mackinon to life. Uh, we've got a Roman centurion. We've got a weird. Uh, centaur dude kind of walking around um and uh and yeah uh, I, I remember like I, it's funny like every time i would flick back on this story and believe me like the moment i first got it illustrated i would just like endlessly read and reread it myself and i yeah it's funny like i i it always seemed like a longer story than it actually was like i'm looking back on it now it's only eight pages it doesn't give you a lot of space to work with but it's amazing what you can kind of pack in if you use that space effectively. Um, so we go from, um, you know, Tony getting getting the pitch because now he's dead. He's a shareholder in Afterlife Inc. Um, he's got a nice little pamphlet, which I think um, if you zoom in very closely, you can see the Empyrean on it. Which, so that must mean, wait, hang on a minute. I'm going to zoom in myself. Ooh, that's a tough one. I think that is Ash's illustration, which means that, again, this must have been something that Ash. Yeah, the back of the Dying to Tell trade, there's the there's the famous Imperian illustration that Ash did. So that means he must have drawn it at this point to have stuck it on the uh, on the flyer. And then of course we get the final two pages where we get Tony, we get Tony kind of um, you know doing his bit to camera. Uh, and of course my my young self and my my kind of you know Christopher Nolan esque level of of creative genius. I was like, oh yeah, we'll have rounded rounded corners on the panels man to show that it's kind of like coming through on the television uh again i was like flying by the seat of my pants back then i was just kind of making it up as i went along but um yeah so we get uh tony you know kind of like he's a pilot in the afterlife and we get um some very key lines of dialogue here which if you've read the entire run you will see these we call back to this moment in the very final pages of after i think volume six so yeah like Stuff was planned 
from the beginning, I, I swear, which only really got paid off in like six volumes time. And yeah, and will be developed in book seven going forward. But yeah, I want to be want to be absolutely certain here. Like it was all part of the plan, I swear. So again, stupidly ambitious, even even from the get go. And um, I I love Ash's design for the kind of golden spaceship. Uh, it's so funny that in developing this story and talking to Ash and talking through it, it's funny how many um, how many of these stuff just kind of solidified through developing the story. Like I, I the idea that all the tech in in the Imperium is kind of golden and vaguely clockworky, that just kind of you know came out of cool stuff he'd draw and then we'd chat about it and then it would I'd reference it again in a future story. So yeah, all all vessels, all ships in the Imperium are golden and you've got Ash to thank for that. And of course we end with a really cool kind of picture of the Board of Seven, who uh, all our main cast of characters who <laughs> basically like none of them feature in this story. Uh, because when you take it for what it is and how it was meant to be a uh, pitch for the main series, that would explain it. It's also the weird quirk as to why most of the main cast of characters are not in this, are just not in this story, basically. They're not in this book as a whole, really. They make some appearances, but yeah, it's weird that like certain background characters, in hindsight, actually get more time than the main cast of characters. So as we turn the page, we move into Origin of Species, which is the uh, kind of second story. Now at this point, like I'd I'd made this pitch, so you might be asking to yourself, you might might be asking yourself, why on earth did you make a second story? Well, I guess I kind of just got the bug. I kind of got this bug for like, I want to tell, I want to tell more stories. And if I've still got the main plot of Afterlife Inc. just untouched, sitting in a drawer somewhere, ready, ready for that inevitable publishing deal, there's absolutely no harm in me telling more side stories. So I think at this point, I started to get the idea that like, oh, you know what, I can. You know what? I can um, I can do this. I can just tell some side stories. There's no reason why not. And maybe I'll tell a couple or you know three, and and then that will help me. That will help me kind of sell the main series. So I think I just became addicted to the creativity of it, and I just started going. Well, you know what? I'll worry about publishing later. I want to tell more stories because I have this weird idea for Origin of Species, um, which is uh, it's even shorter than the previous one. It's a seven-page story. I don't know why I settled on seven pages. It's a very unusual length to, of a story, of a short story. Um, I do remember Sonic the Comic back in the day used to be an anthology of four short stories, and the longest like headliner story was always seven pages. So maybe I was drawing influence from that. And then when you consider that, like uh, the first page, basically nothing happens on it. So really, it's like a six, it's like a six pager like that. So this one is illustrated by Jerry Gaylord who, again, an artist I've never met in person, but all my interactions were done with him online. Now, Jerry was an artist on Comfort and Adam's Uniques anthology, and I kind of poached him off that to come and work on this story. And as you can tell from his, story, from his artwork here, he's got this incredible kind of like chunky, um, hyper, hyper exaggerated way of drawing people. And I absolutely love it. Like, to this day, I think Origin of Species might be one of the short stories which I am the most proud of. And it's actually, I think it's a bit of a, a bit of a fan favourite as well. It's actually kind of amazing how many people still talk about this one. Um, this is a bit behind the scenes, but I'm currently working on some Afterlife Inc. related stuff 
which is quite exciting. Uh, and it's the kind of thing where I'm not actually allowed to talk about the ins and outs of it that much because I've signed um, I've signed some paperwork and stuff. But it's funny that in developing that, we, we are coming back to things and moments like Origin of Species, which was this kind of... I think if the first story was about kind of like laying your plot on the table and going like, here it is, take it or leave it. Origin of Species is suddenly where the emotional heart of the series kind of revealed itself. And I think I kind of surprised myself here, really, because it it, it was just one of this weird, this weird moment. Maybe it's because I wasn't too focused on the production of things. I was just kind of really just a, a, a kid, an idiot, just trying to make comics and see, for the sheer joy of it. And I think now, like... Um, Whenever I work on something, I I can't escape the reality of going like, okay, I've got to put my producer hat on. How am I going to find a team? How am I going to finance this? You know, the creativity is still there, but it's always, I'm very, I've seen how the sausage is made now. I'm very um, aware of the, the pressures and the, the, the you know, the, the sheer amount of effort and time and money it takes to make a comic. But at this point, like anything was possible. I was too, I was too ignorant to know any better. And... A weird thing about Volume 1 is that I was almost kind of like showing off a bit. I was almost trying to, I guess, I guess trying to like, A, improve my skills, but also kind of trying to like showcase what I was capable of, like some of my, I wanted to try my hand at different kinds of storytelling. And oddly enough, in Book 1, there are stories where I wasn't mimicking but I was tr almost trying to tell a story in the style of somebody I admired. So Origin of Species is me trying to do a Warren Ellis story. Like, I still think it's my own, but Warren Ellis was very good at doing like kind of short, punchy, kind of pithy little pieces of science fiction. Um, that were kind of one and done. You'd never come back to it. Like a lot of planetary, which I really would recommend reading if you if you haven't if you haven't read it. And it's a shame, really, because I, I admired Warren Ellis so much, and then um, obviously some stuff emerged in recent years about him, which kind of soured that sadly. But as a creator, like he really kind of you know was a, was a big inspir inspiration for me. And yeah, so again, in the, in the spirit of telling like a kind of pithy like almost like a what if Halloween specially kind of story, we have Origin of Species, which kind of just dives right into the action. And again, introduces two, two characters who I think almost get like more screen time and dialogue than any of the main cast of characters, <laughs> which is bizarre. Uh, 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 and yet they're just kind of side characters, really. Like Marie was really like a kind of just cool side character that I liked. And you could ask yourself, like, why wasn't this Elizabeth? That's an excellent question in hindsight. I guess it's because in my head, there were all these other stories featuring Elizabeth, like clearly like a whole main storyline of a comic featuring Elizabeth that just hadn't kind of seen the light of day yet. Um, but hey, so we have Marie, who is a, uh, a kind of French uh, aristocrat from several hundred years ago who rightly points out that she would have no idea what dial-up internet sounds like because, you know, she died, was born and died before it was uh, invented. And of course we have, we have App. And App is 
Well, if you've read if you've read Afterlife Inc., I hope you love App and have come to love App as much as I did. And I hope you can kind of appreciate then how weird it is that App was never part of the original plan. He was never, ever part of the plan for Afterlife Inc. Again, bearing in mind that there's this whole other other universe, which I've got like in a manila folder somewhere, which is like, one day I will tell the main story of Afterlife Inc., which is planned out from Jack's death to the end of the series. And these are just side stories. These were never meant to be... These were never meant to be... Well, I guess they are canonical, but they were never meant to be part of the main flow of the series. And so it is so wild then that in the second story, the second thing I ever made of Afterlife Inc., I am introducing... Uh, I'm I'm introducing like a brand new wild character already called App, who is an angel, who uh, is kind of reminiscent of a very popular market leading digital smartphone device, which really was cutting edge when this came out. So kind of like 20, 2011 kind of time. And I'm glad that in the years since that kind of thing has become more more ubiquitous, has blended more into the background because it also takes us further and further away from app potentially being any kind of like trademark infringement, which is which is wonderful. Um, it's funny that he was kind of meant to be like a visual joke character because he's like, oh, there's an app for that and he can he can download many, many powers. But um, yeah, it's, it's funny, like you talk about kind of growing growing beyond their initial design, but App just became something kind of special. I think I fell in love with him, really. He kind of became kind of became the, the emotional core of the comic in an odd way. Like, he's just such a nice guy. I absolutely loved, loved App, which I, which I think makes what happens, to, what happens to him down the line all the, more, all the more kind of tragic. But it was just so nice to introduce a character who was just who was just a decent person. Like human, angel, whatever. Like App was just, like he was my Superman, you know. It's very easy to kind of like laugh at Superman as, as, as the years go on. Like we try to, you know, we try to modernize him. We try to make him more edgy. We try to make him more relevant because the idea of just a fundamentally kind, strong, decent person seems kind of, I don't know, seems kind of like, seems weak in a way, it seems outdated. So, you know, me having this big just kind of lunk walking around who was just nice, polite, brave, selfless. It was just nice. I loved having him around. He, and he did a lot for the book, I think, and, and people kind of dug him. And I think a lot of that is because of Jerry's kind of like amazing interpretation of him, which really, I really want to emphasize, is like he's going to be 90s comics in a nutshell. And he's an absolutely massive neck just like incredible muscles. He just needs to look larger than life. And and he does. And, and, and um, you know, Jerry did an amazing job at that. Um, there, we get like a little cameo here of the Ripper, which is like the serial killer in the afterlife. So this is the kind of like connective tissue, which is tying the book together, basically. Uh, this is how I can say to people, oh, no, no, it's, it's in no way kind of just disconnected random stories. There's a there's a plot thread linking everything together. Mm. Pardon me, just grabbing some water. Uh, so yeah, so we have um, something weird has turned up in the afterlife, and 
Jack, for some reason, can hear it. He has a bizarre connection to it in a way that others can't. That's curious, isn't it? I wonder if that'll ever get paid off. And uh, yeah, they find this big shimmering cloud. And uh, it's actually weird, actually. This is a weird little trivia, which I'd almost forgotten. Um, this is actually the second version of Origin of Species. There is a completely, it's almost like lost media. Um, I made a previous version of Origin of Species, which was only five pages. And that was my attempt to tell a tell a story that was practically silent, that had practically no dialogue in it. It was all just meant to be evocative and told through imagery. And it followed it followed pretty much the same story beaks as this story. There was no app, there was no Marie. It was just Jack kind of going about his business, encountering this weird cloud trying to tell it through visual visual media and i it, i got it was illustrated it got made i i included it in the um the infamous lost issue which we will talk about in time but that is um that's on the patreon as a as a kind of special feature if anyone wants to check it out but that I, it was kind of I, it was a bit of a failed experiment if i'm honest i don't think it really conveyed the story it needed dialogue to get these big ideas across and um, yeah, it, it's one thing trying to be evocative, but like if it only makes sense to the creator, then I think it's I think it's a failure. I think I think you want people to follow and enjoy your story. So yeah, so this was Origin of Species Take Two, and I'm much much happier with with this version as it came out. Here we get App doing his thing, and this was like my favorite panel in the world for a while of App after he punches his chest, just letting out this incredible blast of energy, like. As much as I perhaps like, you know, some people, some people are very kind and say that Dying to Tell is a very, is a very um, thoughtful, uh, inventive, wordy kind of story, which is very kind of them. At the same time, uh, they may be mistaken because it's sometimes just a big muscle-bound superhero punching himself in the chest and blasting a cloud. But of course, you know, Jack isn't having that, so he chastises App for acting like a superhero. Um, yeah, and then delivers the kind of like closing, you know, kind of closing moments of the story, and uh, which I'm still very proud of. I think actually, kind of like the the saddest part of of revisiting this is that I think I may have peaked. I think uh, 2011 John was perhaps best John. It's only gotten uh, I've only it's only I've only been going downhill since then. Really, like um, I sometimes look back on this stuff and I'm like, God, what was I on at the time? How did I? Just have the confidence to write this stuff when I didn't I didn't know any better. I mean like it's still it's still, you know, I think like I could probably like streamline it a little bit now. There's probably like a, a few things I would cut, but I wouldn't change I wouldn't change the emotion or heart of it uh, at all. Like I think it's yeah, I think it's I think it works out fine. I'm still very, very proud of that. I think that is a that's a fun little story which um yeah, I'm happy to say turned out well. We then get Silver Screen, which is um, another story that people really, really talk about. Uh, <laughs> I say people, like in so much as like those who have read the comic and are kind enough to share their thoughts always, always come back to Silver Screen. And I think a big reason for that is um, is because of the artwork, which is absolutely stunning. And that is um, full, full credit to Roy for doing this. Roy Hewson Stewart, um, who I have worked with many times over the years. Uh, 
Uh, Roy is um, just the loveliest guy in the world. He's a British creator, very, very talented artist, prolific artist as well. And I remember we, uh, I actually, I think I connected with Roy because we we entered a, a, a short comic competition that The Observer magazine was running back in 2011. And I wrote this kind of weirdly like experimental comic about a cat running through a city called Tobias. And it kind of like, uh, the cat would like shift between different realities and different kind of ways of viewing the city. And it was like a, it was more like a poem than a story. It was very, very weird in hindsight. And I kind of got it. Roy incredibly got it, which was which was just amazing. Like Roy got what was going on with it, which was which was lovely. And I think the two of us were like the only people in the world who got it. I think it was a bit too kind of like experimental. And um, I kind of learned a lesson there. And this is something I parrot endlessly nowadays of the difference between kind of humor and comedy. Um, you can extrapolate this from a lesson about learning how to tell jokes. But the point is that like humor is internal. Humor only makes sense to you and a small group of people. Humor isolates an in-crowd from the outsiders. Comedy is meant to be universal. Now, maybe like a joke isn't for everyone. I'm not saying all jokes are for everyone. But what I mean by that is if you're a comedian and you want to start telling jokes, you have to turn humour into jokes. And that means editing them. That means kind of taking a silly, amusing idea, working out what doesn't work, refining it, and turning it into a joke. And that is the process that I try to apply to writing. Not necessarily writing humor, I mean I mean writing anything. It's like there comes that point where when you are telling a joke, you have decided that you are the performer and there is an audience. And you are shaping your humor into a joke that will connect with people. And that is basically the same process for telling a story. Like if you want to tell a story, I have to assume it begins with you having a cool idea. And the moment you have a cool idea, great, maybe that idea means the world to you. I think Tobias, that weird little story about cat, meant a lot to me. But then of course you have to put it through the ringer. You have to cut and burn away the parts that don't work to turn it into, into a joke. And that's challenging sometimes. But hey, Thankfully, as much as like, Tobias was a fun experiment, we didn't win the competition, And uh, but I did make a friend in Roy. And Roy, uh, as evidenced by Silver Screen, does incredible work, like um, kaleidoscopic, weird, visual, uh, hallucinogenic kind of work. I think I think Roy, um, he might correct me, but I believe Roy works in, or did at the time, works in pencil and, and heavy ink, and then would... Um, add these kind of glowing ethereal colors later digitally. And I think I might actually own one of the original pages of Silver Screen. I think Roy may have gifted it to me once, which was very kind of him. But yeah, this is me getting to be, uh, this is me doing, uh, was it Raymond Chandler? This is me doing a kind of film noir. Admittedly, I'd never actually read any film noir. I've never actually kind of, um, this is not so. I, this is one instance where I wasn't trying to ape another creator. I just was trying to, just trying to ape uh, the feel. I was trying to ape the kind of look and feel of of a of a genre, if you will. And um, I don't want to say it's easy, but I want to say it's very fun. 
like I really enjoyed this. This was a relatively easy, and I, you know, not easy, easy, but a pleasurable story to write because the voice of Love Jackson kind of um, kind of flowed flowed quite easily. I remember um, I'd been to uh, an art gallery with my grandparents, my my kind of my, my Welsh grandparents, my my nine and tied, as I always called them. In, in, in the Welsh language and um, I they're no longer with us now um, we, we lost them sadly in the, in the last few years and I remember um, going to this art gallery with them in the village where they lived and uh, there was a I think the art gallery it used to be a um, was once like a some local architect's home you know going back years and years and years and there was something I think I was reading about the history of a family and there was something about like their family name or his first name of the original guy was like Love God or something like that. Like Love God Jones. Which, you know, as a statement of, you know, your kind of um, religious fealty is, is, is a hell of a, a proud one. But um, yeah, I just love the idea of someone being called Love. So thanks to Love Jackson. And um, I like um, sometimes a name doesn't have to be real if it rolls off the tongue well. Like I do find a lot of writing for comics is less about writing what's real and more about writing what has a particular cadence. I, I do try to, I like, I like to create a nice, pleasing, it's not like a, not like a mouth, a mouth feel, but like a kind of, I want you to read the words and have the words resonate in your head with a bit of rhythm to them. I like them to kind of feel nice. It is kind of like poetry, I think, writing comics. Um, it's not real, but it is pleasing. So here we have like Love Jackson kind of um, going on a, a kind of a, uh, a, a cigarette, a cigarette smoke uh, infused uh, tour of a dark city, you know, uh, trying to unravel a mystery. Now, you know where the name Love Jackson came from, but uh, Victor Holden, who is the murdered actor, I can't remember the exact details, but I want to say I was doing a lot of research into like Sunset Boulevard and films of that ilk. And I think those names, Victor and Holden, are references to something. Can't for the life of me remember what they were, but I did spend a lot of time trying to choose the names. So there's a scene here where we have, um, I think on page three of Silver Screen, we have uh, Love Jackson in silhouette standing over a murder scene. A murder scene in the afterlife. And this is perhaps one of those blinking you'll miss it moments, but of course, given that everyone in the afterlife is made of manner, you know, there is no kind of like flesh and blood. What we have here is, uh, you know, someone's like glowing blue innards like splattered across the road. So it's both gory and not gory at the same time and kind of beautiful. And this is the connection to the Ripper. This is the connection to like the connect the, this idea of a serial killer in the afterlife. This is the thread which is connecting um, uh, connecting all the stories. And I do wonder how many people picked up on that or whether I could have made that clearer because, yeah, there's a murderer in this story. It's just not the murderer that um, Love Jackson is looking for. So, of course, you know, Love Jackson ends up going into this uh, factory, finding an illegal drug called Paradise, which we we do reference later in the stories. I'd say that book five is very much the... Um, book five is very much the, uh, oh, let's reference stuff kind of book. Um, but, yeah... If you get a close-up of um, 
On page two, I want to say, you can see a close-up of Love Jackson's hand holding a piece of paper with Paradise written on it. Remember that because, um, well, I don't know, remember that and then go look at volume five again. Maybe there's some connection there. So then we get this wonderful kind of psychedelic moment where Love Jackson is chasing the man in white. Who could that be? Only, only to run up against a very uh, devilish looking Jack, who another very cool interpretation of Jack here. And this is why I was so keen on the main characters, you know, Jack being, you know, the one who appears most in this book, um, having a very clear visual style, which I wanted to lock down nice and early. Um, because we're going to have these characters drawn by multiple different artists in the span of one book. And it's really, really keen to me that they be, they be recognisable regardless of who's drawing them. So they have to be iconic in some way. So, yeah, thankfully, I think, I think it worked. And, and while, again, how much this was intent and how much was accident, I don't know. But it kind of showed what Afterlife I think was going to be about going forward, about we were going to have a lot of different artists, a lot of different styles of storyline. But we were going to have the same characters were going to be like a recurring, a recurring thing throughout. I have like a nine volume arc in mind for telling the main story of Afterlife, I think. So working on book seven, by the time we get to book nine, the epic, the epic conclusion will have arrived. But I would love at some point to return to this short story format. I like the idea of telling tales from the afterlife and having the main characters pop up as back in the background. I like the idea of having an anthology where the main plot is happening off camera. Something is happening in the background and we just haven't noticed it yet. And I, I like I like I like that because I think there's opportunities for repeat readings to reveal more and more about it. I think an example of that would be um Nameless by Grant Morrison and I want to say Chris Burnham, which is a great little story about um, astronauts and magicians trying to stop a giant asteroid from bringing about the end of the world. Uh, it's a lot wilder than that. It gets very psychedelic. I would highly recommend reading it. It's not for the faint of heart. It's some very horrific imagery, but I've read that book a lot. And it, was, it wasn't until like my fourth or fifth reading where I was like, oh... Like I, I, it's sub, sub, subtext that there's another plot going on. And it took me so long to really work out the key relationship between some of the main characters, but it, it blew my mind when I got there. But anyway, in the words of Garth Marenghi, uh, I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. Anyway, so we get, uh, so again, Roy did amazing work there. Love Jackson was a nice little doomed soul. And again, Calling back, nothing but callbacks. If you go to volume four, which we will cover in time, we get a return, a very brief return from Love Jackson. And of course, we had to bring back Roy to make that scene work. Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying the show. If you don't have a drink to hand, may I suggest grabbing one and rehydrating while I tell you why you should join the Afterlife Inc. community on Patreon. For just £2 a month, you'll receive digital copies of the entire Afterlife Inc. back catalogue, including the Heavenly Chord and the infamous Lost Issue, a true piece of Afterlife Inc. history. You'll also gain access to exclusive Patreon content, including podcasts and sneak peeks of the upcoming role-playing game, as well as the exclusive Afterlife Inc. Discord server. This is a great way to support a comic you can believe in, in return for a host of amazing rewards. And don't worry if you can't afford to pledge, 
Simply sharing your love for Afterlife Inc. on social media can make all the difference. Thanks for your time, folks. Now, back to the show. So then we get Death of a Salesman, which is illustrated by Jack Tempest, who has, again, become a long-term collaborator of, uh, of mine. Uh, Jack is a wonderful guy, um, very, very, very talented artist from a family of talented people. It's, uh, it's absurd. I mean, not only does he have the coolest surname in the world, the Tempisks. There are multiple Tempisks. There are multiple Tempisks who are comic book artists. Can you imagine? I have the pleasure of working with both of them. There's also a Tempisk who is a musician. And I think there's a Tempisk who's like a lawyer. He must be like the respectable one in the family. But yeah, Jack Tempisk, just the coolest guy in the world. Uh, and um, coming along for a cool little story. And I was, again, I, I must have just been like high. There must Maybe there was like a gas leak or something near me at this time. Because I was clearly just being... I was going through a very creative period. Clearly, I was trying trying new things. Um, but here we have the bottle episode. This would be the one which, um, I don't know, the TV show is running out of budget. We need a cheap episode to produce. Let's just have two characters drinking beer and chatting uh, about justice and life and death. And um, yeah, and I have to say, like, in terms of, like, the idea and execution, I, I think it just came together really well. And that's full credit to... Full credit to Jack for making that happen. Um, once again, we do get a little poster on the first page of the Imperian pinup. So Ash and Sean have clearly already put that together. I can't even begin to remember the timeline for how that came to be. But as we turn the page and get into it, I love the like minimal, minimalistic kind of palette that we end up with here. Like I remember saying to Jack in the script that like. I really, really, really want and need heavy, heavy black shadows in this, like pure black backgrounds. Um, there's a thing I've learned from from artists that if you're if you're illustrating and you want to make a scene darker, don't just add the colour black. You should add darker shades of blue, darker shades of red. Like black will obliterate the colour you've added. But you can get around it if you're just having a pure black void, which is obviously what we're going for here. And I just love that for, you know, several pages, the only colours we're running with are the red of Jack's tie, the blue of the manor they're drinking, you know, the, the solid black background. This was a weird phase where I think um, Jack was still kind of like, I don't know, quasi quasi-British, like we, I think we say it here, like, you know, we reference the fact that he kind of has an accent, like he kind of sounds British, and um, it's not that I'm against that, in fact, I, I like the idea of, you know, I, I'm British, like, you know, Jack, Jack's a verbose guy, like, I think there's clearly, like, um, a bit of overlap there, but there was a lot more of Jack saying very stereotypical Britishisms at this point, like saying mate and you what and stuff like that. And I think we kind of stepped away from that as I found a bit more of Jack's voice. Because, you know, when you have a blonde guy in comics who wears like a suit, rolled up sleeves or whatever, and a slightly disheveled tie as he does in this issue, I think we don't want him, we don't want him to just become another John Constantine. Like I don't want to, I, you know, I want to kind of, I want him to have his own identity, which I think is something we've got to as the, as the book's gone on. Like Jack is very much a presence in in this book. Like he's present in in every story, um, 
And I don't think his character is inconsistent, but he's definitely coming across as more kind of like enigmatic in this book, like pushing him to the background. And um, I think while there's nothing wrong with that, and I think it, it definitely kind of makes him mysterious, I think later books gave us more of a sense of him as a his character. And I, I, I became more confident writing Jack. And I think part of that was doing away with the crutch of uh, these kind of quirks of dialogue saying mate and whatnot which um which i think you kind of we dropped as we went on but yeah like i um so this is about jack talking to a world leader who fell from grace and uh you know here we have jack is drinking again we're all drinking manna because it's the afterlife there is no like beer you drink manna but like jack is drinking from pint glasses which is a very british thing and the politician is drinking from bottles you know so very american kind of thing so you know he references democrats and stuff so i think we can kind of assume that he is a, a he is an american politician i think people have asked like is he based on anyone in particular um bearing in mind this was written in like 2011 so i don't know i don't know if he was especially based on any one one politician i think at the time it would have been very easy to say it was George Bush. Uh, it would have been very easy to say also it was Nixon. I think despite everything, I did just kind of want him to be uh, an amalgamation of 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 kind of politicians, um, of world leaders, particularly presidents, really. And I'd like and, and the daft thing is, is that the longer I live and the more the longer this series goes on, there are just more and more, more and more people to whom this could apply, um, which is a worrying indictment of of the political system but like yeah I don't, i'm not going to say this story is quote-unquote relevant it isn't relevant it's just a daft little story about two people talking in a bar but like um i didn't want to be too nasty to the the salesman whoever the salesman kind of was like he was just meant to be, he was meant to be a metaphor, meant to be a kind of cipher for anyone in power. And then the way that power, I don't want to say corrupts, but I think power kind of like is going to force you to make decisions. And I think by the sheer balance of probabilities, you're going to make some bad decisions. You know, and if you're very lucky, you only make a few bad decisions. If you are perhaps intent on burning down the house in which you work um you're going to aggressively make bad decisions over and over and over again in on purpose um <laughs> uh well in which case i don't know how to help you i wanted to just say here that like even though this dude is hated even though this dude is clearly unpopular and has clearly fallen from grace if you will i just wanted to make it clear that like he is aware of that he has the self-awareness to know his own failings so I don't know. If it's about justice, it's also about judgment. And it's more about the idea that, like, if we are angry at people in the real world, if we're angry for the crimes they've committed, maybe it's not wise to wait upon divine justice. Because I think when we're gone, I don't know, as Jack says, we we demand a lot from the afterlife. You know, it has to fulfill all the wrongs in in life both real and perceived. And I think this is one instance where to cement the, if there's an ideology of afterlife, I think it's to cement the idea that like, this is not the afterlife anyone was expecting. Like, 
uh, everybody is disappointed. You know, it's not it's not against one particular viewpoint or another. It's just literally like we were hoping the afterlife would set everything right and it didn't. And so it's just us again. We're all just in the same mess we were before. So we have to kind of make the best of it. So, yeah, this is a dude who did things and now he's being held accountable for them. And it's not about saying whether it was right or wrong. It's about, you know, people didn't like what he was selling. So, yeah, I want to leave it a bit more. I want to leave it a bit more ambiguous than just kind of ragging on on, on someone. And uh, hopefully I achieved that. I guess it's up to you, the reader, to decide whether I did. Uh, and of course, we also get to have Jack look a little haunted at the end of it. So, yeah, the, the inference that Jack has maybe done things in his past which he's not proud of. And um, again, you talk about stuff we reference later. I think volume six leans quite heavily on that. And we're going to be getting more into it as we enter books seven, eight, and nine. But yeah, uh, we also get Jack's little pager, which uh, is the one piece of connective tissue between uh, the um, the stories. Because here we get Jack Jack receiving <laughs> pages. I uh, what do you call them? Like text messages saying that like something bad has happened, and that's how we lead into the next story. But of course, he stays for another pint. So yeah, maybe he's got maybe he's got that great leader actually. But hey, then we get Wonderland, which was very much my... This was me trying to do a Grant Morrison story. Mm. More water. I needed. God, I can, God, I can talk. Um, uh, I love Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison is perhaps the creator which has inspired me more than, than anyone else, really. Um, I... Yeah, I do a whole podcast with my good friend PJ where we 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 exclusively set out to talk about Grant Morrison's run on JLA, which I, I personally think is one of the most influential kind of superhero comics ever made. Um, mostly because Morrison has a, a very weird outsider view on things, a, a slightly skewed perspective that can make even a conventional story interesting sometimes. So this was me trying to bring some Grant Morrison weirdness to the story. And I don't know why, but I'd also really started kind of diving into um, um, Alice in Wonderland. I, I guess I I don't know if it was chicken or the egg, whether I had already decided to do a story based on Afterlife Inc., uh, based on Alice in Wonderland, or whether I'd, you know, whether I'd kind of, you know, just been reading Alice in Wonderland. But I have this idea, this weird juxtaposition between uh, a young girl who dies and arrives in the afterlife and um, sees it like Alice in Wonderland. Or um, and and the afterlife being invaded by a weird anti-imperium, which happened to have like a hive-like, <laughs> a hive-like being living on it that was made up of countless kind of little little uh, drones with um, wearing suits but with weird objects for heads. So yeah, um, this is afterlife. I think just being weird. Like this is afterlife. I think like I don't know. It's not being. I don't know. Origin of the Species was very emotional. Uh, Silver Screen, very evocative. Um, who knows? Dare I say that Death as Salesman was me trying to be intelligent? I don't know. Uh, Wonderland is me being weird. Um, and I think this is perhaps the best benchmark for what the series would become. Uh, it's not quite super heroics, but it's weird fantasy sci-fi... Um, quirky action in a fantastical world and I can't think of any better 
visual kind of representation of this than a millions of suited drones descending from on high. Um, big inspiration for this issue was um, uh, Morrison and Quitely's uh, All-Star Superman. Uh, of course, if you've read that, which is perhaps one of the greatest superhero books ever written, um, there is an issue where Earth comes under attack from uh, a cube Earth. So it's a mirror image of the, of the Earth, which happens to be a cube, and it is launching millions of drones on down onto the world below. So yeah, shamelessly ripped off that idea. Um, it's a bizarro plague, as they call it. I would recommend going to track it down. It is thunderingly weird, but it's very cool. And um, yeah, it's. Um, I just love that kind of. I love that kind of nonsense. I love that kind of weirdness. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun to bring to life here. Um, it also kind of cemented this visual styling of Afterlife Inc. Where if you were telling a superhero story, the visual language of superheroes would be capes and tykes. Uh, this is um, the Afterlife Inc. equivalent of that is the business suit. So that's very much, uh, yeah, I want to run that throughout all the Afterlife Inc. stories where like if we're going to introduce a new quote unquote hero or villain, they have to be wearing a suit. So how can we make a suit visually interesting? How can we do something new with a suit which we haven't seen before? Uh, so yeah, so we jump back and forth between um, Alice's adventures in the Empyrean, which are presented in prose, and um, you know Jack and Co dealing with this weird anti-Empyrean. Um, the prose pages were very much inspired by a planetary story. So going back to Warren Ellis and John Cassaday again, there's a story which introduces a character called Doc Brass, who's very much uh, an homage to Doc Savage, who was a kind of 1930s, um, 1930s kind of pulp hero, one of the precursors of superheroes. And in that story, they cut back and forth between comic book pages, which are showing in sequential art the present day, and then the past, which is presented as kind of illustrated pieces of text to show the old school adventures which took place in the 30s as depicted in the style of a pulp magazine. So this is me um, this is me trying to do that with these little prose sections which I think people liked, I think people found kind of quite surprising. And Ash did a really good job of, again it's terrible, I can't remember the name of the artist, but recreating the style of the original illustrations from uh, the first edition of Alice in Wonderland, which were done in this kind of like scratchy ink illustration. So again, Ash, being very, very talented, did a fantastic job of rendering scenes from Afterlife Inc. in um, in that style. And of course we have, um, uh, if we look at the page, A Long Tale, which is a kind of illustrated manuscript page. Um, I remember people saying like, uh, uh, when I was producing this, uh, somebody on the team was like, hey, did you screw up the pagination? Like, why is the text in such a weird shape here? Well, that's intentional because in the original printing of Afterlife Inc, of Alice in Wonderland, sorry, there is a there is a section of it called a long tail, but it's like a mouse's tail. So it's T-A-I-L. And the text on the page is arranged in a long wobbling line to look like a mouse's tail. So here I did a long tail, a story, rather than a mouse's tail. 
And the text is arranged like the Empyrean. The text is intentionally laid out to look like the Empyrean. And this is me realizing that like, um, you can put so much effort into something that nobody will ever comment on. Like, I tried, and this is me trying to be a good mimic, I tried very, very, very hard to recreate sections of Alice in Wonderland, rewriting them to fit the plot, rewriting them to feature modern characters and concepts of Afterlife Inc. while keeping the voice tone and style of Lewis Carroll. And I, still looking back on it, think I did, I think I did quite a good job of just mimicking the style of, of Lewis Carroll, of, of being a good parrot of Alice in Wonderland. So I don't know, if I could find like a niche out there, like if, it, if there was like a, a sideline, a way of making money of just kind of like recreating Lewis Carroll, uh, I think I may have missed my calling there because yeah, I'm looking back in it now going like, I think I did a fair job on that. I'm a good copycat. Um, we get some of my favorite like fun pages here where we get like Jack and Anahel talking. Um, again, first time Anahel has spoken in this book. Um, I really like the line from Jack that um, uh, I could sell, I could charm the teeth out of your mouth, but you can't reason with an insect. And I can't remember where it comes up now, but I think I also had, I could sell fire to the burning, which I was, I've either dreamt it or I put it into a story or I've just forgotten. But yeah, so here we have the idea that subtle hint at big lore going on here that like even Anahel, who's lived such an, who's existed such an incredibly long time, uh, even Anahel, uh, isn't aware of what the hell this bizarre organism is and uh, it's just something weird from out in the void and uh, yeah I mean like in terms of the rest of the story um, it pans out you know we we cut back between John being trying to be a literary genius and John just writing weird kind of like big stupid concept ideas which I love here we have the idea that the whoever this group are I think in my I've called them the life corporation this kind of like anti drone version of Afterlife Inc. Whatever the hell it is. They have an anti-Jack. They have a weird version of him on a throne. Like, it's this big organic creature that is mimicking Afterlife Inc. Um, I don't know how good a job I did of bringing that to life here, or whether even people picked up on it, or just thought, that's a weird visual. I like it. But, again, if you read Afterlife Inc. Volume 6, a lot happens in Afterlife Inc. Volume 6. If you get to the end of that, well, indeed, there's a callback to this. Um, I want to say, if it wasn't all planned out, I've certainly done enough backpedaling in later years to make it look as though it was. We get a fun page after a mad tea party where we do the classic comic comedy beat, which is where you repeat the same panel multiple times to display comedy. And I don't want to say it's lazy, but it's a good way of filling pages while also getting your intent across very well. So yeah, here we have the assembled forces of Aftal, I think, watching this thing burn and collapse into the void. And yeah, they just look at each other and go, random weirdness? Yep, indeed, definitely. Let's never speak of this again. And I want to say also, I think if, you have, if you're if you a fan of Aftal, I think, and you've read uh, or are, have checked out Extraversal, which is the anthology we made, to go back and reread Extraversal Year One, uh, there is a moment where a the ship uh, I won't go into details here, but there's a ship called the Reflector, which can fly between worlds. There was a brief moment where they pop into a strange, white, empty void, and they see a big, burning shape kind of pass by them. 
And that may or may not be a direct continuation of this weird little scene from Die to Tell. So yeah, so the rest of the story pangs out quite well. I don't think there's much more to say other than I think it had like I think it had a nice little a nice little kind of resolution with Alice. I um again those early stories, because I was very limited by what I could afford at the time, like the the reason this became an anthology is because um I could only afford to make short stories. You know, I could only I could only that's all I could do. And a lot of people have said they really like that, but I think a lot of that was a happy accident because it was was it like necessity, the mother of invention and all that, like or, or whatever that saying goes, it's like I could only make an anthology. So working with my limitations, I had to try and make the best one I could. Uh, there's also a little thing on the final page of Wonderland, you see the missing key, you see Ockroyd's missing key that started the whole story is resting under a tree in a kind of blinking you miss it kind of thing. I really do think in hindsight I probably could have emphasised the keys a little better and I'm going to try and um, draw attention to them more but the idea was that like um, um, the seven archangels who once ruled the Empyrean, they each had a key it was like their kind of their badge of office, it also allowed them to travel freely across the Empyrean. The idea was that the board members, the new directors have inherited those keys. So that was the idea. That's kind of what makes the directors special. So that's part of the law. I don't think it came up too often in the stories. I need to perhaps do um, a better job of it. In volume three, we reference the keys because Jack loses his for a while. So our next story is On High, which is illustrated by Will Tempest. Another one of the Tempests. Uh, just an insanely talented family. Uh, and this is me, as I said earlier, like there's some stories in this book where I was kind of like, um, I was uh, trying to do stories in the style of other creators. So Origin of Species was me doing Warren Ellis. Uh, Wonderland was me doing Grant Morrison. Uh, On High is me doing Neil Gaiman. Trying to do a Neil Gaiman-y kind of story. And... Um, I mean, I don't know how much I kind of have to say about On High. Um, it's not because the story isn't worth commenting on or, or because kind of, um, you know, I, there are things I'm unhappy with it. Uh, I'm not. I'm actually very chuffed with it. In fact, I think it kind of turned out so well that it's almost like the complete package. Will did a fantastic job bringing it to life. He did a really, really good job of... I, I particularly like his take on non. So the kind of like the angels of paradise who these kind of grey humanoids, which I, I said I want to have like kind of uh, gold discs for eyes. You know, the idea being that it's like, you know, two coins for the dead, you know, that kind of tradition. And um, uh, yeah, and, and Will just did such a great job. And I think if I have a, if I, if I would do something different kind of now, I would... I think this is me trying to like, it's not, there's nothing gratuitous in the, in the story at all. It's very, very tame. But I think this was me trying to like, I don't know, be, this is John trying to be edgy. This is, this is, this is me at like a, a very mild, um, inoffensive boy trying to, trying to push it a bit by telling a story that's about like, kind of like sex and, uh, you know, kind of like, um, punishment and stuff. And the idea that like, I don't know, that uh, Non was dissatisfied because they effectively had to do kind of like uh, dominatrix stuff all the time. And um, I don't know, I, I, there's nothing wrong with it. I think maybe in hindsight, 
even though it's pretty tame, I think it was me trying to be a bit provocative. And I think, I think I don't, don't necessarily need to like fall back on that sort of thing now. I think that may have been a bit of a crutch of me trying to, trying to prove that I could, I could make stuff outside my comfort zone. Um, I should say on page uh, two of Wonderland, there is a nice little cameo from Love Jackson. Not everyone would have picked up on it, but there are two pages in black and white, which are meant to be very film noir-y because of the, at the end of Silver Screen, Love Jackson goes back into paradise, which is the geography of the Imperium being what it is. There is a region called uh, Macon, which is divided halfway between stereotypical notions of hell and a region where uh, it's just full of hallucinogenic pink mists, where your deepest fantasies come to life. And of course, that's where this story is set. And it's about those who need or want to kind of dream dream their, their afterlife away in kind of sweet oblivion, really, because their deepest fantasy comes to life. And that's what non caters to. So, yeah, we have a little cameo of... Um, we have a little cameo of uh, of uh, Love Jackson here, lost in in his dreams. We and we get the sense that Non is Non is unhappy with their lot in life, their lot in afterlife. Uh, a little cameo here, just as um, cameo or a reference, but just as Non agrees that they're going to go on a mission to find the fortune to kind of like this mythical feature uh, figure that they believe Jack to be. Uh, the brand mark on this person's chest is of the Wheel of Fortune, which is meant to be a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, a multi-pronged wheel, basically. So there's meant to be some symbolism there. Um, as Non ventures out from Macon into the world, uh, there's a thing about saying, like, you know, there were signs of recent battle. Um, that's where uh, Non encounters dead drones, you know, which we kind of is a direct continuation of Wonderland. So this is this is me trying to sow, sow these kind of plot threads between between uh, kind of stories. Um, and also we get posters slapped on a wall saying, beware of the Ripper. So again, that is the, con <laughs> that is the connection to there being a serial killer in the afterlife. Um, that is apparently the kind of um, the plot thread tying it all together. Um, yeah, and, and eventually like, you know, Non meets Jack and gets to see Jack as this kind of divine figure before kind of realizing that, realizing that Jack isn't. Or maybe they never realise that, but they, you know, Jack gives them what they want. Some, I don't know, maybe they got their wishes fulfilled. Um, well, again, also this kind of like this subtle implication that like there's something kind of different about Jack. The idea that like things don't seem to work on him in the same way, like the mists of paradise, the shape-shifting powers of non, like he seems a little resistant to them or going back to origin of species the idea that like jack could hear the, the the ai the living program in his head so it's not over i never wanted to suggest that jack has superpowers but there's some weird connection with jack here uh to to there's something a bit more going on and i don't know i, I don't know if i overplayed it in the early books or underplayed it in the later ones but it's kind of there in the background and you know, when you're telling a story in pieces over 10 years, as much as you do have a plan and try to do stuff, there's a few things which, well, actually, there's plenty of stuff, plenty of things I would change in hindsight, but I think it mostly works. There's a few things I would tweak, but hopefully nothing contradictory or anything. So, yeah, like, you know, we don't hear Nong's wish, but I think we can infer that, you know, Non 
quite liked whipping, just wasn't happy with the manner in which it was doing the whipping. So, I don't know. Is this big? Is it clever? I don't know. Um, people like it. I've had a lot of people say they really they really dug the ending here. Um, yeah, I I thought it worked out relatively well. I'm quite, I'm quite pleased with this. So, yeah, Paul Non gets to have a happy time working as an angel of pain rather than an angel of pleasure. But hey, um, we're, we're nearing the end now, so maybe I should try and pick this up so I don't... Um, this doesn't turn into like a four-hour podcast. But we're getting to Elementary, which is drawn by Del Borovic, who was the very first person I ever, ever collaborated on uh, on a comic. Uh, Del illustrated that story I drew for Comfort and Adam on their on their anthology, their, their, in, their, on their indie series, The Uniques. So it was lovely working with Del again. And... Um, it's funny, oddly enough, because this story has quite a striking colour scheme again, and a lot of people really like it. That was kind of, um, everyone goes like, oh man, I, I love how stark and kind of um, uh, abstract the, the, the story was. Like, And I have to go like, oh yeah, that was totally intentional. When in reality, it wasn't intentional at all. I think it extended from a misunderstanding. Um, when I commissioned Dell for this story, I think it was on the understanding that um, it would be full colour. It would be fully, fully illustrated. And um, it was actually a complete miscommunication. And, and the, the price we'd agreed upon was actually for Dell's um, just inks. And this is no no shade against Dell because, you know, Dell is, is very, very, very deserving of getting paid the full amount for their, their talents because they're, they're, they're astonishingly skilled. Uh, and, you know, Dell was kind enough to work to a compromise where they would do um, very, very limited kind of spot colours. So just the hint of yellow in Jack's hair, uh, the red tie, uh, Lux's blue, uh, her gauntlets. So, you know, Dell was a superstar. And, and it's funny because I think it actually worked out to the story's advantage. Like um, it really, it really kind of scans out as this bizarre little story. And I think given that it's about Sherlock Holmes, um, having this um, more black and white kind of style kind of almost makes it, it, it evokes perhaps that kind of earlier Victorian kind of illustration. Um, another shout out to uh, Sean Di Pasquale, the, the writer. Um, I've always loved it when a character in a comic has a unique speech bubble to denote a particularly like unique voice or um, way of talking. Um, a lot of comics have done it over the years. I mean, you only have to look at the Sandman and... Oh, this is terrible. Who was the who was the letter on that? Was it Sam Neil? No, oh no, I'm sorry. I'm sure there's people screaming at me through. Um, I've got that completely wrong. I have to look it up later. But um, yeah. So again, this idea that Lux would have uh, an inverted speech bubble would have a black bubble with white text, and and Sean did a great job in in rendering that. Something we've you know we've carried on to this day. So yeah, um, Dell doing wonderful jobs, a wonderful job of bringing both Lux and Sherlock Holmes to life here. Um, I'd been watching uh, Sherlock at the time, like the first series of Sherlock on the BBC, and that's funny because I remember like watching that and thinking, "Oh my god, this is brilliant! Like, wow, this is so clever, so clever!" and it's so funny, like, I wonder if in hindsight it actually lives up to that, because I think I tried watching some of the later series and found it to just be insufferable. And I'm starting to wonder whether I was kind of like, we were all just caught up in the moment and maybe it was never quite as good as I thought it was. But for a hot moment, like, Sherlock Holmes seemed pretty, like, cool and relevant. And um, as a classic example of me 
you know, putting far too much effort into something which I don't think anyone ever commented on. The, of course, famous Sherlock Holmes story by Arthur Conan Doyle is a study in Scarlet because someone has been brutally murdered and there is blood spattered everywhere so that it looks like an artist was performing or constructing a study in Scarlet. Uh, Neil Gaiman wrote a very cool short um, short Sherlock Holmes story with Lovecraftian elements for an anthology of Lovecraftian uh, Sherlock Holmes stories called A Study in Emerald, which was about a non-human being who was murdered and green stuff was splattered everywhere, which I'd read and I thought was kind of brilliant. And so continuing that, this is me doing A Study in Sapphire, which, uh, as Sherlock Holmes says, this is A Study in Sapphire. And I don't think anyone has ever commented on that. But if you next see me and you want to make me feel good about myself, if you could just say like, oh man, calling it a studying sapphire, that was really clever. I'd be like, thank you. I needed this. Ten years, ten years after the fact, I really needed this. Um, we have Dell drawing uh, the really lovely uh, kind of clockwork moon on the edge of Mackinon, the capital city of, of the Imperium. Uh, again, not something I've ever drawn massive attention to. I think because I planned to cover it in the original kind of story plan for the published series of Afterlife Inc, which of course ultimately didn't didn't come to pass. But um the uh uh the the void, this white void uh kind of surrounds the Imperium, so much so that like there isn't really a sky. If you looked up normally all you would see is uh the white the whiteness of the void. But the idea that in Mackinon, where most humans live in the afterlife, uh, there's an artificial sun and there's an artificial moon, which uh, kind of are clockwork. They are on arms. They move around the edge of the Empyrean. Something that I've never massively kind of drawn attention to. It's just kind of in the background. And it's the idea that like they are generating a sky. They, it's like a, it's, a, it's one of their effects, their powers. They're generating what looks like a night sky and what looks like a kind of sunny day. And these are kind of like these are illusions. These are kind of. Um, um, visual uh, tricks to make people feel more at home when they're living in the city so they don't feel too kind of like generally freaked out. Again, whoever built the Empyrean, and that's part of the big mystery of the series, was trying to make the humans there feel more comfortable. So yeah, so we get the conclusion of the Ripper storyline, the idea that there's a serial killer. Um, Dell did a... like uh, I'd, um, I'd wanted to have this scene where Lux gets kind of stabbed through the back, uh, scabbed in the back and was going to have the blade kind of come out of the stomach, um, which was meant to kind of emphasize that Lux obviously wasn't human, that, you know, had a different anatomy and could survive things which would be more destructive to 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 actual humans. Um, I think I said in the script that like the blade would kind of like pop out of her stomach. There'd be no blood that like her innards would be kind of um, um, kind of like golden rocks. Um, Dell like really, really ran with this, and and it's both kind of like beautiful and kind of disturbing at the same time. Like it's a hell of an image. Um, it, it's it's surprisingly graphic for there not being much blood. And when I when I think about things I might do differently now, like while it is um, quite a visual, um, I'm also aware that like just because Lux is an angel and by her own admission can take can withstand things that others can't. Um, I started to become aware after a while that she was taking a lot of punishment 
and it didn't seem fair on her as a character. And I think the way I've woven that in later books into her character development is that she's starting to... The world told her she was kind of disposable, and so she was kind of acting that way because she kind of doubted her self-worth, really. And I think in later books, I've tried to draw attention to it and maybe apologise for kind of like the the pain we put her, I put her through, basically, is on me. Um, and yeah, I want her to... I mean, like, you make characters you love and then you hurt them, but like, it shouldn't be sadistic ever. And I think it's important that Lux kind of get the respect she's so deserving of, basically. So yeah, I probably would um, would rethink that a bit if I revisited that. Like, um, the implications of her being hurt so badly uh, are not something I ever wanted to, never wanted them to come across as kind of like um, malicious. Um, but yeah, and, and so we get this nice little denouement, which is um, Sherlock and the Ripper kind of talking about the meaning of life. And I... Um, yeah, I'm still really proud of it. I'm still really proud of it. Like, oddly enough, Sherlock, I, I, I was reading some Sherlock Holmes to try and you know, get, get a feel for it, but a lot of this just kind of came from my idea of what Sherlock Holmes should be rather than any direct any direct liter literature or re referencing or whatever. Like, this is me doing a pastiche of Sherlock Holmes and hopefully getting what I think the voice is right. Uh... And uh, yeah, I'm still quite proud of this. Um, I can't remember the original quote, but I remember there was a quote. I, I've, I've lost it now, but it was something about like the importance of life being like love, joy and admiration. And I, I tried to weave that into his dialogue here. And, and again, I'm very, I'm very pleased with it. And, um, you know, I think it worked out to quite a sweet little moment where Lux, who's a very stoic character, ended up having it, who, who a very stoic character who the world tells us is somehow less than human. And then this confused man who thought he was Sherlock Holmes who was also kind of living a lie and then I don't know if there's a I, this is something that really resonates with me and I think if there's a if there's something I want to keep coming back to in after I think it's the idea that like how do people find where and how do people find their pride like how do you find your self-worth um it can be in tiny little things it can be in inconsequential things and sometimes they're not very public but like yeah, I, I like the idea of people finding pride or finding finding a reason to kind of hold their head high. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think I think Sherlock, whoever he was, this doomed little figure, does quite a good job of um, yeah of kind of vocalising that. So then we get on to the final story, and I really will try not to talk too much longer. We get onto the final story, which is from now on, which is the return of Ash Jackson, who did three stories in this anthology. He's such a trooper. It's good to have around. Um, and this is me talking about Arthur Conan Doyle, really, and um, I don't know. I don't know. What are, what are the ethics of kind of fictionalising a real person? When does it become okay? Like, how many years have to pass before that's allowed? I mean, I think the general consensus would be that, like, it has been so very many years since the death of Arthur Conan Doyle that turning him into a fictional character somehow seems okay. I don't know. I don't know the right or wrong of it. Um, but again... We do it all the time, don't we? Um, I don't know when the character becomes kind of fair, fair game, really. But I hope, um, I hope we kind of treated him with some respect. Oddly enough, at this point in my life, I hadn't actually read much Arthur Conan Doyle. I think I kind of, you know, 
respected his output more than I was actually familiar with it. Um, so I tried to kind of pack in as many references as possible. Um, you know, the um, the little gravestone to Sherlock Holmes is a direct reference to, um, oh, is it the Reichenbach Falls where where he actually, well, I say actually, where the character died in fiction, only he didn't die, he came back. Uh, and I think in real life, if you go there, there is actually, someone has erected a plaque for for the to memorialise Sherlock Holmes. So again, interesting that, like, again, a fictional character who someone felt felt compelled enough to memorialise. So I don't know, I think daft as our kind of pulp heroes may be, um, you know, as trashy as they might be sometimes, I think they can mean a lot to a lot of people. Maybe someone found some pride in, in Sherlock Holmes. And I hope in this we managed to treat, um, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle and his, his oeuvre with a little respect, really. I mean... There's times when I look back on volume one and I think like, wow, I was being like oddly literary in this book. Like I'm referencing Alice in Wonderland and uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. And it's like, um, and then all those kind of like lofty, classy amb ambition, all it just went all out the window uh, with future books and it just became kind of pure comics weirdness after a while. Uh, so yeah, I don't know what was going through my head at the time. I, I'm still very proud of like Dying to Tell. Um, is it, is it completely representative of what the series would become? I don't know. I don't know. I guess it was just me being oddly creative and trying to have fun. Uh, yeah, and um, so yeah, if like all all our stories kind of coalesce with a a big firework display where everyone gets together, and um, you know, this is where I, I tie all the plot lines question mark together. Like, I think if you do a story like this, it's very easy to say that everything that came before it was all perfectly part of a bigger a bigger whole. Um, I really like the idea of like facet storytelling, where like like a diamond, you kind of every short story is a is a facet of a greater a greater structure, and you know you just get a glimpse of it from a different angle with every story, and it's only when you consider them all together that you finally see the whole. And I guess you'll have to decide whether I achieve that or not, but that's what I was trying to do with Dying to Tell. And, um, you know, and again, just like having Arthur Conan Doyle be this kind of um, mouthpiece for a lot of the themes of the book and, and then kind of like the themes for what Afterlife Inc. as a whole is trying to achieve. The idea that like this isn't the afterlife any of us were expecting. Uh, it's somehow the afterlife where we've, we've ended up and, you know, we kind of hope the afterlife will be a reward. We hope it will be vindication or justification and we hope the right people will get punished and the right people will get rewarded. And then the idea that like people just turn up here and it's not the case. We're, we're just exactly the same sad, sorry people we were when we died and confused as ever. And now we have to kind of pick up the pieces. And, you know, if you, you know, when you're alive, you try to find purpose. I mean, how many times have we talked about like the meaning of life or trying to find, you know, the point of your life and how many of us achieve it? Are we somehow diminished if we don't? achieve it are we are we somehow better if we do i don't know um and the idea was that a character arthur conan doyle a real person who achieved so much in life and um you know and now he's got this dilemma of going like he's done it all there are no mountains left to climb you know what do you do knowing that you're kind of burdened with eternal life like when we're alive with you know we, we live in fear of death like we we try to make our moments mean something and then 
hey, you die, you end up in the Empyrean and now you've got nothing but time. And it's like, well, is the pressure still on? Like, do, is it still, can you still achieve things without that fear, without that drive? And I think that's why, as Jack kind of sums up in this story, that's why, that's why Afterlife, Afterlife Inc. exists, you know, to kind of give people meaning, to give them a reason to keep going when there isn't one. Uh, there isn't a grand meaning, and so we make one. We just try try really flipping hard. In doing my research, it was also kind of like heartbreakingly beautiful to learn that Arthur Conan Doyle's last words to his wife were, you are wonderful, which is just, just regardless of what you think of a man and his body of work, I mean, bloody hell, that's just, that's such a, such a wonderful expression of love. That's kind of remarkable, really. And, uh, yeah. And that moment is ruined by having App in the background, this big cartoon character just kind of <laughs> uh, bringing everyone together. But yeah, I think um, I look back on this now and I'm like, as a whole, the book, it's like, it's a little rough around the edges. It's a little messy. It's a little scrappy. But I have to say, like, you know, congratulating my young self. I think there's a lot of creativity here. And I think you can forgive a lot of the looser edges um because because I, I think the emotion still kind of rings true i don't want to pat myself on the back too much because i think there's a lot i would change in hindsight but i think this is what people this is what people would comment on i think i think i think the book has a good heart and i'm quite proud of that and i think that's kind of what set us on such a set me on such a a wonderful kind of trajectory you know to continue making these things because people responded so well to the first book um the final story is the kind of holiday special 2011 which um oh is is daft it's a daft bit of fun it's kind of silly doesn't have a lot of uh <laughs> doesn't have a lot of greater meaning um fun little cameos if you want to have a look for it uh on the second page of the holiday special uh there is a conveyor belt which is making mechanical elephants I made a two-page short comic called Mechanical Elephant, which featured in an art gallery in 2011 in Margate, illustrated by Sally Jane Thompson, who is an astonishingly talented um, artist. And that was the first time I saw um, something I'd written up on a wall in an art gallery, like for public display. I was very proud about that. Um, on Jack's shoulder, there is a glowing orange cat that is Tobias. That is a reference to um, ha. That is a reference to uh, that comic I made with Roy for that uh, competition. Uh, and on the following page, we see a shot of a man drowning with his tie kind of drifting up above him. And you might be asking yourself, what on earth is that? Where is that from? And that, my friends, is from the infamous Lost issue of Afterlife Inc., which I will definitely, definitely be covering on <laughs> as, a, as an episode for this pod because that um, that is a bizarre oddity in itself. Um, that was when I thought after I think it was going to go in a very different direction that it ultimately did not did not take. But clearly I was producing it around the same time. Like my my timeline, my internal timeline is getting confused here. But yeah, that is a panel from the Lost issue. If you'd like to read it, it's one of the bonuses you can get from signing up on the Patreon. But I will be coming to that issue uh in time uh when uh when when we get to it but yeah i think there's enough to talk about there for a whole episode um so yeah 
That is it. That is it. That is dying to tell. And I honestly cannot believe I have talked as long as I have today. Um, clearly, just wind me up and let me go. Um, yeah. I, the last the last little anecdote I will say about Dying to Tell, and I'm sure there'll be more to talk about when I return to talk about Near Life, the next volume, is um, I spent 2011 making and publishing, quote unquote, the stories in Dying to Tell on my website. So I would publish a story kind of once a month or kind of like whatever my production schedule and my budget at the time allowed me. That meant I could afford... Um, because I didn't have much money to play with in those days. And um, I was publishing them kind of just in this loose schedule on my website. I had no idea of knowing if anyone even visited my website. It was so basic. I, I had no idea about viewers or anything. And I was going to conventions. This was my, this was my year, 2011. I was like uh, learning, growing strong, publishing comics online. And then I printed Dying to Tell uh, as a book. It became, a, it became a graphic novel in its own right. And at this point, I was like, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. This isn't the main series I'd originally intended on writing. Um, these are side stories. One side story turned into two, turned into eight. I've got enough for a book. And so I, I connected with a printer through the people I'd met in comics, and I printed um, my very first print run, my very, very, very first print run of of a comic I'd made. And I'd never set out to be an indie publisher, but I was still going, well, you know what? I can move into the indie scene. I can print this book. Maybe even a person will buy it. And then I can still pursue my dreams of publishing this as a main series. So everything I publish independently, those will be side stories. Those will not be the main story of After I think. I will save that for when I inevitably get a publisher, which, spoilers, I didn't. But the point of this is I printed my very first print run of Afterlife Inc. And I went to my very first show, which was London Super Comic Con in February 2012. This was my first outing, my first time behind a table. I was kind of terrified. And I printed 150 copies of my very first comic that I'd made myself. And I almost couldn't believe it was happening. I didn't know what on earth was I was doing. I didn't know if I was going to sell a single comic. And I went to this two-day show at the Excel Centre, a big trade show, uh, a big, uh, sorry, big convention centre in London. Kind of out of my depth. I had my wonderful girlfriend, Lucy, with me, now wife, to support me, who was an absolute saint. And um, I remember set setting up on my table and uh, a lady came over and the very first thing she said on my very first show ever was, oh my God, it's after I think, I love this. And she bought it. And that was my very, very, very first sale. And somehow, inexplicably, against all odds, it was to someone who'd read the stories on my website. And I have no idea how she found it. And I don't know if I've ever crossed paths with that woman again, um, but I can't begin to say how gratifying an experience that was. And I don't, um, I don't like to kind of like talk about, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want really to like go into talking too much about money and all that. But uh, I, I think it's kind of relevant because I, I want to say like how kind of like lucky I got in my very first show because my very first print run was 150 copies of of my comic, 
and I went to this show in London. And I thought I was thinking to myself, if I sell one, I'll be I'll be very happy. And in that very first show, which was in 2012, Scan Lee's first UK appearance in years. So if you can imagine, we have this big aircraft hangar of a convention centre. We had Scan Lee at one end, massive queues of people, and then we had, in hindsight, quite a meagre collection of tables. So if you can imagine the scene, there are a handful of creators like me, there are a handful of vendors, and there was a bunch of people who came to see Scan Lee. And after they've done seeing Scan Lee, they've got to, well, they've got to entertain themselves somehow. And so we had this massive audience who had come for Scan Lee and then stayed to see whatever the remaining dealers had. And I just happened to be one of them selling my comic. So again, not to go into numbers, but again, I went to a show hoping I'd sell one. I printed 150. And in my very first show ever, I sold 93. And it was such, like, it was so much better than I had anticipated that it just gave me this massive kind of, like, it was like the wind behind me. It filled my sails and it gave me the power to kind of like surge ahead. And who knows, if I'd only sold one, if I'd sold none, I probably would have kept going, but it would have been it would have been you know kind of a very very different story for me so the fact that people just connected with it so quickly and i think a big part of that was the luck of having a big captive audience who'd come to see scanley and were bored but you know like selling one book is nice it's when they come back for the sequel that's when you know you've maybe done something right so again if i hadn't had that incredible show first show i think things would have perhaps gone a bit differently but hey I got very, very lucky and incredibly it's allowed me to continue doing this. So, you know, oh, wow. Well, I mean, I have collectively this morning been talking for what feels like an absolute age. Um, I would like to uh, thank you for joining me and uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, I thank you for your support of everything I've done over the years. Like it really, um, it really means a lot. Um, if you're listening to this, there's a very good chance you're one of my Kickstarter backers, you know, and thank you for thank you for being there for that. Thank you for making the 10-year anniversary possible. I look forward to doing more of these going forward on a regular schedule. Um, I imagine they will probably be a little shorter now because I've broken the seal. We can start kind of um, moving forward. Uh, if you have any questions you'd like me to answer, you know, any comments, I'd love to hear from you. Um, probably the best way to do that is um, I'll put my email address in the description of this episode. Feel free to get in touch. You can also reach me through Patreon as well. Um, if you do want to support the show on Patreon uh, for just two pounds a month, you can help. You can help fund the creation of After I Think. You can get sneak peeks of uh, new pages, Volume Seven, as it comes out of the RPG as I continue to develop it. And you'll get uh, digital copies of all the books in the series, not to mention some very curious oddities like the lost issue, the infamous lost issue. So thanks, folks. Uh, yeah, what a ride. I think I need to go get some water. Um, so on that note, I should say my very professional ending, which I have prepped. You've been listening to the Afterlife Inc. podcast, a deep dive into a comic and a company you can believe in. I've been your host, John, the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc., the Afterlife Inc. podcast is made possible by your support on patreon.com forward slash Afterlife Inc. Thanks for listening, folks. And remember, it might not be paradise, but you can see it from here. <laughs>